Galatians 2, 1 to 10. Now, when was the last time you had to, uh, you had to be a part of, attend a really crucial meeting? Uh, a meeting which, whose outcome would affect you personally and affect those that you care about deeply. A crucial meeting. One of the first, well, one of the most crucial meetings that I've ever been a part of was when I met Melissa's mum for the first time. For those of you who don't know me that well, Melissa is my wife, and she is Chinese-Malaysian, and as you can see, I am not. So when Melissa, my, the lady who is now my wife, told her mum about this Maxali, this white guy who was interested in her, things got pretty tense in the household. You know, sadly, it's true that white men in particular have a very well-earned, bad reputation for messing around with relationships with local girls here in Malaysia. And Melissa's mum knew very little about me, other than that I was a white guy and I was interested in her eldest daughter. So Melissa thought to break the ice, she would organize a meeting so her mum could get to know Tim better. And I was very nervous because I knew that the outcome of this first meeting, this first impression, could have a profound effect on my future with Melissa. It was a crucial meeting where much for me personally and for her was at stake. Would the result be positive? Would this Maxali guy be welcomed into Melissa's family? Well, Melissa is now my wife, so you can tell that her parents were very gracious with me. This morning in Galatians 2, we have a meeting where the stakes are infinitely higher. Not just for one individual in a relationship, but for all of us, if we are Christian, here this morning. The meeting that we are about to see in God's word has had a profound effect on you, whether you realize it or not, if you are a Christian here this morning. And Paul enables the Galatians that he's writing to and us here today to have a front row seat at this crucial meeting. Its outcome would affect whether the gospel would ever get out from Jerusalem where it first began to be witnessed and out into the world for people like us today. And Paul's been telling us quite a bit about himself Uh, If you've been here for the past couple of weeks, you'll have seen in chapter 1, he's talked a lot about his personal history, who he is, as well as his message. And it's not because he's arrogant. It's not because Paul is full of himself. Rather, it's because, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you saw in chapter 1, verse 7, some people are troubling the church in Galatia, and they are distorting the gospel, the very foundation that the Galatian Christians have to know that they are God's people. They are undermining the gospel that Paul, as an apostle, preached. The good news that God, entirely by his grace, entirely by his undeserved favor, has delivered us from our sins, as Patrick reminded us at the beginning of the meeting. God has made us right before him in Jesus, his son, who shed his perfect blood for us in our place that we might be forgiven. Yet these false teachers are telling the Galatians that that is a defective gospel. 
that Paul has shortchanged them. Oh, oh, sure, tr- trust in Jesus, that's fine, but it's not quite enough. Paul's shortchanged you. You need, to, you need a little bit more than Jesus. And so Paul's defending himself in order to defend the gospel of grace, that we are saved through faith in Christ alone and nothing else. So he has explained that he is a true apostle. He's been personally appointed by the risen Jesus himself. He's not a a second-hand apostle who would somehow to rely on the other apostles to even get this gospel in the first place. But Paul, he isn't stupid. It's very likely that these troublemakers in Galatia, they're not just saying Paul's a second-hand apostle, he's a renegade as well. Uh, All the, the, the message that he preaches, it's not even in line with what the apostles are preaching back in Jerusalem. And so basically, these false teachers are making out there are two gospels at work in the earlier stages of the church. There's the message of the Jerusalem apostles, which these troublemakers are suggesting, well, that that what they're saying is trust in Jesus, but there are some other things you have to do as well. And And that's the message of the Jerusalem church. And then there's Paul of Tarsus with his gospel of grace, trust in Jesus and him alone. And that's inferior. That's substandard. You've been shortchanged. And so that's why Paul invites us to this crucial meeting that he had with those apostles in Jerusalem. Because this meeting determines if there is any serious gap between Paul and the other apostles. And it revolves around three key issues that all flow from the gospel. Freedom, truth, and fellowship. Freedom, truth, and fellowship. We're going to look at each of those in turn, but before we do that, we're going to look at the introduction Paul gives us to this meeting, the setting. When this meeting happened, who he took with him, and why. So let's come to the setting in verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Uh, There's a bit of debate about it, but I think Paul is going up to Jerusalem some 14 years after he was first called to be Jesus' apostle to the Gentiles. He trusted on Christ as Lord and was called to be Christ's messenger of his gospel to the non-Jewish church. And notice, Paul doesn't go up to Jerusalem because he's somehow being summoned by Jerusalem HQ. It's not that the Jerusalem apostles are somehow pulling rank on Paul. They're court-martialing him or something like that. No, this meeting starts actually by Paul's initiative. The reason he goes, we're told in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. Jesus had revealed a word to Paul that told him, you must go. You must go. And as he does that, he's not going to stand before a great public church council uh, to give account for his actions. No, verse 2 again. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential. Uh, Paul goes to hold a private meeting so that he can set before the, those who seem to be the leaders of the Jerusalem church, those who seemed influential, he can set before them his gospel of grace. And he's not going alone. And back in verse 1, we're told he takes Barnabas with him. Barnabas was a fellow colleague of his. He was a Jewish Christian. In fact, Barnabas was instrumental with Paul in planting the church in Galatia. 
been a, a very faithful mission partner and a, a source of great encouragement to Paul in his ministry. But along with Barnabas, first one again, we have Titus. Now this was a bold move by Paul, given the meeting he was about to attend. He's taking Titus. Titus wasn't a Jew. Unlike Barnabas and Paul, he was a Gentile convert. Paul is taking Barnabas, a Jew, and Titus, a Gentile. And as they meet with the Jewish church leaders, Paul is effectively setting up a test, which will be played out even before the discussion starts. How will these Jerusalem church leaders treat Titus, a Gentile convert? Will they eat with him? Will they, will they even sit down with him? Will they consider Titus one with them? If you remember what we had read to us in our Old Testament reading from Ezra 9. So we saw how God had commanded his people, the Jews, to be distinct from the nations around them back in Old Testament times. They, they weren't to intermarry with other nations. They weren't to have close relations with the Gentiles. And God gave them those commands at that time to protect Israel from going astray after the gods of the other nations, forsaking Yahweh, the only true God, and life with him. But even Israel's experience shows us that though God's commands to them, they they were good, they were healthy, Israel were useless when it came to keeping them rightly. Even as they sought to keep those rules of distinction, they, they still had to offer sacrifices for their sins. And those sacrifices, they rarely represented hearts that were actually for God, that actually loved him and feared him. No, they just continually broke his law until they were cast out of his sight. And then Jesus came. And Jesus fulfilled that law on behalf of his people. Kept every rule from the heart without a hint of sin, unlike Israel. And then the one man who never deserved to die who never deserved to face the punishment for sin, faced it at the cross. And he did so in the place of his people. He he gave his perfect life at that cross to make his people, both Jew and Gentile now, acceptable to God through faith entirely on what he has done, washed clean by his blood. Because Israel, their story tells us, no one can be right with God by rule-keeping. Our hearts are too sinful for that. What a relief it is that Jesus kept every law that God puts on his people from the heart. And then by stepping into our shoes at the cross, he was punished for our law breaking. He was punished in our place. So that we need never rely on keeping rules to be pleasing and right with God. To be acceptable in his sight. So all those cultural distinctions that belonged to the Jews in the Old Testament, the barriers between Jew and Gentile, they were broken down in Jesus and his cross. Now Paul believed that. And that was the gospel of grace that he preached. And Barnabas believed that. And Titus believed that. But did the apostles in Jerusalem believe it? Did Peter and James and John believe it too? Well, how they treated Titus, this non-Jew, would be the test. And I think that's why Paul's being very discreet as he arranged this meeting. It was a private meeting because Paul knew this meeting would decide. Have a look at the end of verse 2. 
the stake, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul's, now, Paul is absolutely convinced his gospel is true. We've seen that over the past couple of weeks. He's made it clear his gospel was given to him by the risen Lord Jesus himself. Paul knows he's got the right gospel, the gospel of grace. He's not afraid of getting it wrong. His concern here is that the Jerusalem apostles might have lost it. That they've rejected salvation and right standing before God through faith in Christ alone. If they expect Titus to eat in a certain way, or dress in a certain way, or receive the Jewish mark of circumcision in order to truly be one with them as God's people. Well, that would have been tragic. Because the apostles, these chief witnesses to Jesus, would have been divided in their message. The Gentile church would have suffered greatly for it. They would have been encouraged to trust in the hopeless works of man the cultural observations of the Jews, rather than Jesus and him alone for their salvation. Oh, this meeting is private, but it's private in case Paul has to do some serious damage control and bring those Jerusalem apostles back in line with the true gospel of grace. We'll see next week how Paul had to rebuke Peter because he was practicing out of line with the gospel. He wasn't working out those implications faithfully. That's for next week. Paul and Barnabas, they, uh, they go down with Titus. They have their meeting with the Jerusalem church leaders. But it appears that during this private meeting, some of the false teachers that have even uh, are sharing in the false teaching of Galatia, that, that they got in as well. Have a look in verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in. And this other party who have become privy to this meeting, they kept up a fuss. It's in relation to the fact that Titus is clearly not a cultural Jew. He's not circumcised. Now notice how Paul describes what these false brothers are doing by kicking up a fuss about the fact that Titus is not a cultural Jew. Verse 4. They slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul hears them saying, oh, Titus isn't circumcised. And he knows that what's at stake is spiritual freedom. Here's the first critical issue that they face in this meeting, freedom. If Titus is forced to, to, to have this Fairly small operation. I mean, painful. Yes, I know. The men, whenever I mention the word circumcision, it might be some of the men start crossing their legs. It was painful, but a rather minor, so a rather minor operation. If Titus is forced to have this done in order to be considered a true member of the people of God in Christ, then Paul's gospel that brings freedom will be undermined. It will be changed from a religion of believing, of trusting in what Christ has done to be right with God, to a religion of achieving, of trusting what I do in part. And that kind of religion, Paul says here, is slavery. It's not freedom. Slavery. You know, the famous reformer Martin Luther knew this slavery only too well. Before God brought him to a saving faith in his son, Luther would try so hard to live by the commands of Christ that we have in Scripture. He would fight against his lust and his greed and his pride. 
And as he did so, he would be full of doubt and fear continually because the harder he tried to be the man that he thought God wanted him and needed him to be to be right with him, the more he relied on his performance to be right with God, the further away heaven seemed. He lamented over his failures and even when he was doing well, he doubted it was enough. It was slavery. He was mastered by those things that he was seeking to do to be right with God. Just brought fear. It's only the gospel of grace that can liberate us from that and bring us freedom, true freedom, from that horrible cycle of relying on what I do to be right with God and then failing miserably and then despairing when I've blown it and thinking God could never accept me now. You know, I heard one minister once say, it's not just our bad deeds that we need to repent of, but our good deeds as well. It's a funny thing to say, isn't it? It's not just our bad deeds that we need to repent of, but our good deeds as well. Actually, it's not strange at all if we understand the gospel of grace and how we can often relate to it. Because often, sadly, we do practice good deeds. We do the right thing, but we do it for less than commendable motives. I remember hearing about this uh, guy over, I think it was in New York a few years ago, who had uh, stumbled across, discovered a huge stash of money in one of their, the equivalent of their LR, underground LRT stations. He came across this massive stash of money. Uh, and it, it turned out that it was part of the uh, stolen bullion from a heist. Um, and, and, of course, the police were looking for it. The bank wanted it back. Uh, and this guy, well, he did what seemed to be the honorable thing. He, he took the money and he gave it back to the police who passed it on to the bank. Oh, well and good. Well, what an honorable thing to do. The right thing to do. Very honest of him. Well, naturally, of course, there was a, a reward for returning the money. And the man's reaction to the reward, the reward that he received from the bank, it showed up the true motives of his heart. It showed the real reasons for why he actually returned the money in the first place. What, what seemed to be that good deed? Because he got really angry. He got really angry because he had handed in more than $10,000 to the bank, and the bank had said, thank you so much for doing the right thing. Here's $100 as a reward. He was angry because he was, he was dissatisfied with how much they gave him back. It looked like he had just simply done the right thing because it was the right thing to do. But really... That man in his heart, he had given the money back, well, probably for fear of being caught himself with it, and in the hopes that he might somehow profit from it. Not simply because it was the right thing to do. Shouldn't have mattered whether there was a reward or not. But his heart said, I can profit from this. That's why I'll give the money back. When he didn't profit as much as he wanted, well, he got angry. We as Christians, we need to be on our guard that the good deeds that we do are not done with the wrong motives. Because we're somehow trying to justify ourselves before God in our performance in what we do. Uh, Later, we're going to be highlighting our growth group's ministry. Uh, That provides a, a great opportunity for us to continue building one another up as Christians, helping each other see in smaller groups from the Scriptures what it means to live free from sin with Jesus as our good Lord. And it's often in those small groups that we can work out more of the personal, practical implications of the gospel for our lives now, now that we've been reconciled to God, now that we're living for his kingdom. 
We can pray and support one another as we meet together in that way. But it would be terrible, friends. It would be terrible if we take what we apply, what we learn from those meetings, you know, something like, I, I'm convicted that I, I should be delighting in and reading God's word more regularly. We take that application and then start to rely on that in order to be right with God. Think, if I read my Bible enough, that's how I will stay in God's good books. No. That's not a right motivation for us as Christians. That's not pleasing to God, and that's not in line with the gospel of grace. Because we are exchanging Jesus as our only hope of being right before him for something that we do, rather than taking a healthy habit like Bible reading as a right response to the grace, to the love that he has shown us in Christ. That's why we're to read God's word regularly, not not to earn God's favor, but in thanks to him, in response to his great mercy, because we want to now know him and love him and honor him as the God who has saved us at such a cost. We want to know what it means to now live as members of his kingdom because that's what he's made us in Christ. We don't get ourselves there. God's put us there. You start to rely on your Bible reading to be right with God, you are going into slavery. You will depend more and more on that habit and less and less on the cross of Christ and it will enslave you and it will destroy you. We need to repent of our good deeds if they're getting in the way of our reliance on Jesus as our one and only Savior. Paul knew that freedom in Christ was at stake in this meeting because Titus was being encouraged to trust in the work of the law rather than hold fast to Christ as his only hope with life with God. So not only was freedom at stake, but it was actually the truth on which that freedom is based. That was also being questioned. It's the second thing, truth is at stake. Have a look in verse 5. Paul says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, if Titus had been forced to be circumcised, then what the Jerusalem apostles would have been effectively saying was, yeah, Jesus isn't enough. You do have to do something in your own body, in your flesh, to be right with God on top of faith in Christ. Paul knows that's not his gospel. That's not the gospel that Christ gave him. Oh, it might be dressed up in religious garb. It may be put forward by people who are claiming to be influential leaders of the church. But when the gospel which Paul gave Paul to preach so that men, women, and children can be saved from hell and brought into his kingdom for his new creation, when that message is tampered with, no matter who's doing it, Paul knows he's got to fight. He has to fight for the truth of the gospel. Friends, if we love Christ, we love people, and if we love the gospel which has saved us, then there are times when we must, like Paul, not give in for a moment. When we must stand up and possibly stand out for the truth of the gospel so that it might remain. I I know this can be uncomfortable for many of us because we like the quiet life. We don't want to have to stick our necks out, have uncomfortable relations. For me, I'm I'm coming from a British culture. I have to fight the urge at times of being overly polite. 
subdued, you know, tolerating everything for the sake of peace and quiet, avoiding uncomfortable conversations. The Australians amongst us seem to struggle with that a little bit less. I'm only joking. But if a leader in the church here were to say something which undermines the gospel of grace, I think that gospel demands that I speak up. Now, there's wisdom in what Paul does here. He holds this meeting in private with those who are influential, doesn't he? He protects the church in case those leaders have gone astray. But he does not ignore this serious attack from false brothers on the gospel of grace. Friends, tolerance of untruth is not a virtue. Tolerance of a false gospel is not a virtue. Because if that gospel is allowed to be preached elsewhere without being challenged, then other people may well trust in it as a false security. And in the end... They put their trust not only in Christ but in something that they do and they think they're right with God on the basis of that. The stakes couldn't be higher. We're talking about eternal life. We must speak up. Of course we're to do it gently. Of course we're to do it in kindness and to be motivated by love as we do. But we must do it because it's the only gospel that will save as a gospel that combines faith in Christ with works, with what we do, will not. My sister Lucy, back in the UK, is a believer in the gospel of grace, entirely as a result of God's grace, and I'm thankful to him for her. And she has many friends who are sincere Roman Catholics. Now, let me be clear here. Lucy and I know Christian brothers and sisters who are part of the Roman Catholic Church, and praise God that they are depending on Christ alone for their life with him. We are not in the kingdom of God on the basis of our church affiliation. But many of Lucy's friends subscribe to the official teachings of Roman Catholicism. And friends, those teachings do undermine the gospel of grace. Because they are teachings that make faith not purely a matter of depending entirely on Jesus' finished work at the cross for us to be right before God. But they make faith something that we must sustain by what we do in order to be right before him. It's faith in Jesus and the mass in order to be right before God. It's faith in Jesus and confessing my sins to a priest in order to be right before God. It's faith in Jesus and something. It's true of any other religion that promotes faith in anything but Christ and his finished work at the cross. And I'm thankful that God has given my sister Lucy the wisdom and the courage to speak kindly and gently but faithfully to her devout Roman Catholic friends about the gospel of grace. It would be much nicer, uh, sorry, much easier and nicer for her in some senses if she, didn't ha- if, she, if she didn't do that. It would be far more comfortable. Take the easy way out. Pretend everything's okay. It's the same gospel, really. She knows that as comfortable as that might be, it's not the loving thing to do. No, it's actually 
her love for her Catholic friends that drives her to speak to them about the sufficiency of Jesus. That his cross is enough and that by looking to some other grounds of assurance, you're rejecting your only hope in him and you're instead enlisting yourself for slavery. I must do this, I must do that, I must do that and then living a life of insecurity and fear that I can never do enough and God will never be pleased with me. Paul was willing to put his neck out to resist falsehood. And we, therefore, we have the first result of this meeting in verse 3. Not even Titus was forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Praise God for that victory. Because through it, the gospel of grace was preserved for the Galatians, for you and for me, for Gentile Christians today. And God now calls us to defend it against other gospels that are no gospels in our world for the sake of those whom we love. Well, because Paul stood up for the truth of the gospel, we see a further encouraging result in verse 7. And that is fellowship. Fellowship, verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. You know, we should really thank God for this moment in the meeting as well, when the Jewish Christian leaders were big enough to see that God and his gospel is bigger than their own cultural distinctions, and that the gospel of grace is for both Jew and Gentile the same message that they were one with Paul in their belief and practice. Jesus has done it all. Rely on him. That is the only means of spiritual freedom. That is the only means of being the people that God would have us be. And the result of that is in verse 9. James, Peter, John, the so-called pillars of the church, they receive Paul. They give him the right hand of fellowship. That's more than just being friendly and welcoming. They're approving of Paul as a partner with them in witnessing to the true gospel of grace. Oh, oh, oh yes, okay. So Peter, James, and John, they're, they're, they're going to the Jews, while Paul, in command to Christ, is concentrating on the Gentile church, but they are one in their Christian belief and mission. And the only thing that they ask Paul to do, they don't add anything to him or his message, but they ask him in verse 10, remember the Paul. The very thing that he was eager to do. Actually, Peter's being quite specific there. It's not just remember the poor in general. That is an important thing for us to do as Christians. But actually here, it's being quite specific because the context of this meeting occurring in Jerusalem at the time, well, there is a great famine taking place. We read about that in Acts, Acts 8 in particular. This great famine had broken out. And as a result, the Jerusalem church, the Jews who were trusting in Christ... In Jerusalem, they were robbed of basically all that they had. They were already being marginalized by the Jews who had rejected Christ. And as a result, when Paul goes around the Gentile churches, when he's planting churches in Syria and Galatia and other areas, he always encourages them to hold a collection and to take money so that he can take them back to the Jewish church to support them in their hardship. And isn't that a wonderful example of genuine fellowship in Christ? When people who have never physically met one another before give of what they have 
to support that brother or sister in Christ in their hardship. Speaks of the, of the bond of fellowship that we have in Christ. What makes fellowship? It's the gospel. It's the gospel that the Jerusalem apostles saw in Paul and his ministry. That gospel which brings Jew and Gentile, black and white, introvert, extrovert, people from all kinds of diverse backgrounds and cultures under one God again in his son to be a new family. If Jesus has accepted you freely, entirely by his grace, and has accepted me freely, then we are one in that foundation. You know, the thing about family, though, is you don't choose your family, do you? I didn't choose my sister Lucy any more than I chose to be six foot tall. If we're a Christian here this morning, whether we've even met, whether we've even had a conversation or not, we are brother and sister in Christ. But we are a diverse bunch, aren't we? Here at St. Mary's, different different personalities, different interests, different tastes. Some of us like songs. Some of us like hymns. Some of us wear suits to church. Some of us wear shorts and sandals. Some of us like durian. You know I don't. As a cathedral, we we have many who prefer a traditional service with robes and liturgies. and, And others of us prefer modern styles of communal worship. Some of us might think robes are pretty weird. But I assure you that those who prefer them think that we're weird for not using them. But we're all still grounded in the same gospel of grace. We are one family practicing in different ways as a church. Are we allowing our unity in Christ's blood to trump whatever cultural or personal preferences might otherwise get between us here at St. Mary's? No, not looking down on others or feeling superior to others because of the way they practice compared to the way that we practice or the way they dress because of the way, compared to the way that we dress because they're not doing it the way we want to, even though God's word has very little, if anything, to say about that matter? Are we counting our unity in Christ, our foundation to be one family as him, as the priority? We are one family in him, and we need to live like it. It's worth emphasizing, though, that our fellowship is in Jesus. He is the basis for our unity in the gospel. We need to notice that because presumably these false brothers who had crept into this meeting, they were claiming to be part of the family as well. Hence, Paul calls them false brothers, those who seem to be part, to belong to the family, but are false, are not. And so I'm afraid we do need to be discerning as well. There will be folks in the church who call themselves Christians, but in their beliefs and practice, deny the gospel of grace. Friends, we must love them and always be kind and generous toward them, but we can't consider ourselves in fellowship with them. We can't consider ourselves partners in the mission of the gospel together with them. Why? Because we don't agree on that gospel that unites us. The freedom and truth which Paul and the Jerusalem apostles have defended in this crucial meeting, that same freedom, that same truth, requires us to say, sadly, we cannot be one with those who deny the gospel of grace. Because whatever their message is, it's not the good news that testifies to Jesus as our only Savior and our true risen Lord. That message will not be setting people free for life with God, 
to enjoy the freedom that comes through faith in his son alone, but it will be enslaving them to something else. Freedom, truth, fellowship. They only flow from the gospel of grace. And praise God that by Paul, he preserved the truth of his gospel for us in this crucial meeting so that we can rejoice in the freedom of knowing God through faith in his son. Not by rules, not by regulations, not by observing some cultural distinctions that enslave and divide, but by Jesus and his cross, his finished work. Because that is the way in which we've been made one with God and we've been made one with all who believe in his great gospel of grace. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we do thank you for this meeting that we see in the scriptures reported for us and for the crucial outcomes that came from it. We thank you, Lord, that you used Paul to defend the true gospel of grace, that we are declared right before you through nothing of ourselves but entirely on the basis of Christ and his finished work. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand, believe, and defend where necessary the implications of the gospel of grace, the gospel itself, that we will be those who continue in right freedom, right truth, and right fellowship as your people. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.